Well, do please sit down and um, perhaps you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 9, page 1013. Page 1013. Let's be terribly African. God is good. All the time. Great. This is going to be fantastic, isn't it? I've got lots more like that up my sleeve. Uh, Mark chapter 9 and um, from verse 14. Having uh, been in Israel for eight days, the contrast uh, from the dry Middle East to the lush British countryside was was startling when I arrived back on Monday. I actually arrived back on Monday at three o'clock in the morning, but once uh, I I got out again into the countryside, I saw uh, the difference. Uh, We actually drove uh, down south uh, as a team uh, Monday morning, and as we were driving uh, down, I, I saw not only England's green and pleasant land, which was lovely to see again, but I also noticed again the many church buildings, the church spires that punctuated our, our countryside. A church in every village, every parish of every town with a church in it. It's a, it's a reminder of the rich Christian heritage that we have. And that brought home to me another huge contrast from this trip to Israel and to this conference While I was there, as I've already mentioned, I met many African Christians and I heard again and again of the explosion of the church in Africa. In parts of Africa, they are not just planting churches. You know, we're thinking of planting one church every two years for the next 20 years. They're not just planting churches. They are creating whole new dioceses each year because there are so many new churches springing to life. They would look at our attempt at planting churches as quite insignificant. The contrast is marked. Here, in Britain, we have church buildings with no one going to them. In parts of Africa, they have new churches with no buildings to meet in. Now, there are bound to be many, many, many reasons why that is happening in Africa and not happening here. But the fundamental reason why it's not happening in Britain is very clear. So much of the church in Britain has stopped believing the gospel. So much of the church is at worst little more than a social club and at best only teaches a a sort of religious moralistic humanism. So when people do go to church they hear nothing of any import. They find no life, no message of hope and so they think there is no reason to go and frankly if that's all they are hearing there is no reason to go and so they stop going. Now it is that lack of faith in the church that we see here in chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel on page 1013. I guess for most of us we've read this story many times before. Some you may be here for the first time. If you're here you're very welcome. You may never have read this story before. It's a great story. It's a story of a man bringing his little boy to the disciples to be liberated from an evil spirit. And it's a story about the disciples not being able to deliver And the man is left distressed and disappointed as he says to Jesus there at the end of verse 18, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. And so you see at the heart of this chapter, we see how ineffective the church is when it stops believing the Gospel. How utterly useless the church is when it stops exercising real and genuine faith in Christ's death and resurrection. Before we look at the detail and... uh, You might think, how have you got to that point? Let me give you a quick overview of the passage. Remember, Jesus uh, was up a mountain with Peter, James and John. Uh, We saw that last week. The other disciples um, had, while Jesus, James and John were up this mountain, 
The other disciples had a boy brought to them. The boy was possessed by a demon. Verse 17, uh, this demon had robbed the boy of speech. At times, verse 18, the boy was paralysed by this evil spirit. Verse 29, the demon uh, had taken the little lad to the point of death since he was just a little boy. And the reference of the gnashing of teeth there in verse 18 and to fire in verse 22 suggests not just physical death but judgment and hell. This demon wanted to take the little boy to, to hell. And so the little boy, you see, is a picture. A picture of every man's fundamental captivity to Satan from birth onwards. When Satan gets hold of us and he gets hold of everyone, he causes unbelief and that eventually leads to death and hell if we are not redeemed. Unbelief is at the very heart of this story. Uh, We see that as we look at where this story is positioned in Mark's Gospel. See, last week Andrew took us up the Mount of Transfiguration in verses 2 to 13. Jesus up a high mountain with Peter, James and John And they witnessed something out of this world. Do you remember if you were here last week? As Jesus met with with Moses and Elijah, two great Old Testament characters who'd been dead for hundreds of years by the time this happened. And while Jesus was meeting with Moses and Elijah, Jesus' appearance changed so that he shone brilliant white. Remember that from last week? It was a most spectacular moment. Can you imagine being there? And you'd have thought, wouldn't you, that anyone who'd experienced that would have had enough to have kept them going for the rest of their lives. But do you remember the discussion as they came back down the mountain? Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And why did he say don't tell anyone? Well, verse 10 tells us. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. No wonder Jesus told them not to say anything. They understand what it was all about. They didn't understand what rising from the dead meant. Even though they had just witnessed the most remarkable scene, they were spiritually clueless. Now, look what happens at the end of it. That's that's just before our story today. Look what happens at the end. Verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He didn't want anyone to interrupt because the disciples are so clueless. They've got to understand this. What did he teach them? He said to them, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. See, there it is again. Rising from the dead was a complete mystery to them. Of course, that is remarkable in itself if we've been reading through Mark's Gospel. Back in chapter 5, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And Peter, James and John had been there. They'd witnessed that remarkable moment when Jesus took the little girl, the dead little girl's hand and said, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. They'd seen the little girl who'd been dead get up immediately, instantly walking around. They witnessed a resurrection and yet here in chapter 9 they were clueless whenever Jesus spoke about rising from the dead. Now sandwiched between those two moments, chapter 9 verse 9 and 10 and chapter 9 verses 30 to 32, sandwiched between those two moments, sandwiched between that cluelessness about Jesus rising from the dead is this incident about a demon-possessed boy. 
And this incident is all about rising from the dead. And we see that when we look at the climax of the story. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Literally, verse 27 reads, Jesus took his hand, raised him up and he rose again. See, the boy rose from the apparent world of the dead. And the word used in verse 27 of the boy rising is the same word that is used in verse 10 and verse 31 about Jesus rising from the dead. This incident then is a little cameo of death and resurrection. Here we see Jesus' victory over one demon as a glimpse of Jesus' ultimate victory over Satan and all the powers of hell. Here we see Jesus saving the the life of a little boy And that is a glimpse of how he will save all who trust in him. Now this event then is placed here to demonstrate how we need Jesus' death and resurrection. And more specifically, how we need to depend totally on the one who can bring life out of death. And what we will see in this incident is how ineffective we are when we fail to believe Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, four things if you're uh, taking notes this evening. In this incident, we see that we live firstly in an unbelieving generation, that we face secondly an enormous uh, um, uh, predicament, that we need thirdly an almighty saviour, and then fourthly we'll see the disciples are taught in an indoor seminar. First, we uh, we live in an unbelieving generation, verses 14 to 19. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? Unbelieving generation. Now here's the shock. At this point, the disciples are unbelie- the disciples are unbelieving. See, that is the problem at the heart of this story. Uh, unbelief, it's there in verse 19. In verse 24, the little boy's father says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And when we look at verse 29 in more detail, we we will see the reason um, that these disciples didn't pray was because of unbelief. Jesus is surrounded by an unbelieving generation and every generation is the same. Unbelief is what is always likely to grab hold of us, you and me. Now we, we get that when we think of the context again. Jesus has just been up the Mount of Transfiguration with who? Moses and Elijah. And then he returned down to this scene of chaos and unbelief. Now that ought to remind us of events of Moses and Elijah. Do you remember? Exodus chapter 32. Moses was up a mountain getting the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what happened in the valley below? The people, of the people of God no less, were making a golden calf and worshipping it. And so as Moses came down the mountain there was chaos. 
the Israelites were breaking the first and the second commandment. They were unbelieving. It's exactly the same here, isn't it? Think of the event of of Elijah. When was Elijah up a mountain? 1 Kings chapter 18, up Mount Carmel, confronting the evil woman Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. Elijah saw God defeat them. But when he came down the mountain, do you remember the next chapter? He felt all alone. He said, Lord, I am the only one left. He couldn't find any other believers. All alone. Unbelief all around him. And now here is Jesus up a mountain with Moses and Elijah. And when he came down the mountain, what does he find? Exactly what Moses and Elijah found. Unbelief. That's the world we live in. We live in a world that has rejected the living God. He gives his law and we prefer to worship things that we have made. He demonstrates that he is God by defeating other gods and still there are few who will follow him. We live in an unbelieving world, a world that has rejected the one true living God and that's the problem here, verse 19, O unbelieving generation. But as I say, the great surprise is that the disciples were the ones who were unbelieving. That's why they were unable to drive out this evil spirit. That's what Jesus says in verse 29. He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. See, they haven't been praying, they haven't been believing, they haven't been trusting in him, they've been trying to do it themselves. Here is an example of an unbelieving church. And when people come to the church that is unbelieving, they end up distressed and disappointed, as the boy's father did. See, verse 18, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. We met people like that. They'd come to the church. they go away disappointed. On the plane back from Israel, I was talking to a delightful young man. I had uh, Tim Davis on this side. I had this uh, other man on this side. And uh, I told him I was a vicar and I'd been on a Christian conference. And we got chatting about Jesus. Bingo! He was uh, very open with me. At one point he said this to me. We had a long conversation. He said this to me. I tried the church once but I didn't see any need for it. Do you know people like that? Uh, Caroline, my wife, was telling me of someone recently visiting a church for the first time. The preacher was so dull they haven't gone back to that church again. When people come to church and they hear nothing that's relevant to them, they don't come back. See, they turn up with their problems. Who knows why they came? They turn up with their problems and the issues they face are not dealt with and so they walk away. They meet people who are powerless, whose lives haven't changed. And the young man on the, on the aeroplane said the same thing to me. He'd met Christian people and he wasn't impressed by their lifestyles at all. And when preaching is irrelevant and the lifestyles of Christians is no different from the world, people walk away. Of course they do. And the church in Britain is full of this kind of unbelief. Or people who are clueless when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus, just as the disciples were. Where the cross is not preached, where the power of the resurrection is not known. It is tragic, isn't it, friends? There is a dying world outside. People are going to hell because that is where Satan wants to take them. And when they finally arrive at the church, which ought to give them the gospel, they don't hear anything. Isn't it tragic? A few months ago, I spoke to a worker from a church not far from here, a church worker in Sheffield. I'd never met him before. I was at a meeting. I asked him if he was born again. He told me he didn't believe in that kind of Christianity. 
I showed him from the Bible that being born again wasn't a strange kind of Christianity, but that Jesus said it was necessary to be born again if anyone was to enter the kingdom of heaven. We turn to John chapter 3. He told me he was sceptical about life beyond the grave. He worked for a church. When the church wardens asked me to go to to, uh, the GAFCON conference in Jerusalem, I was happy to go. The Global Anglican Future Conference, 1,200 church leaders from all over the world, 230 bishops, a conference that's born out of a concern that much current leadership is hindering the mission of the church. It is exactly this stuff. A conference which has called the church back to belief in the scriptures, to belief in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It was a conference attempting to deal with the problem of an unbelieving church, of a church that is preaching another gospel. A church that denies the power of the resurrection to change lives. I want to commend to you the statement that was written at the conference. See, an unbelieving church needs to be exposed and confronted and called to believe again in the cross and resurrection. You see, as we look at Mark 9, we see how easy it is to become unbelieving. Let's not think we're a long way from that. We could easily become unbelieving ourselves. Maybe we are already. See, this is a remarkable moment in the life of the disciples. They couldn't drive out the demon. But again, if we've been reading through Mark's Gospel, that should be a surprise to us because they have driven out demons in the past. Just look back with me at chapter 6 and verse 7. chapter 6 verse 7 calling the twelve to him Jesus he sent out them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits look down to verse 12 they went out and preached that people should repent they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them they had driven demons out in the past but now in chapter 9 they couldn't do it any longer what is that about? William Lane, the uh, Bible uh, commentator, writer, writes this. The disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift they'd received from Jesus was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. This, he writes, was a subtle form of unbelief for it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than in God. That's good, isn't it? Isn't that helpful? Unbelief in the church can be very subtle, The Lord equips the church and the church sees great things happen and then it is very easy for us to stop trusting the Lord and to trust in ourselves and the gifts God has given us. And I want to call us here at Forward to beware of falling into the same trap. It is so easily done. I see it in my own life. When I've led the Christianity Explored course and seen people wonderfully converted, it is very tempted the next time that I lead the course to be uh, tempted not to uh, pray, not to trust God, but to just think, if I, all I've got to do is run the course. Uh, to trust my own ability. To trust the course. That is the beginning of unbelief. Here at Forward, the Lord has done great things down through the years. We give thanks to God for his work in this place. But listen, it would be very easy to believe that all we have to do is to do the things we've always done. Just keep turning up and just keep doing what we've always done. 
It's so easy to stop relying on the Lord, isn't it? Do you know that feeling? I do. That's why I believe that the most important meeting we organise is the monthly church family prayer meeting. If you've never been, some people can't come for good reasons. They're looking after the children, they have jobs, whatever. Some people can't come. If you've never been to the church family prayer meeting, will you start coming so that we as a church don't fall into this? Because as we pray, we demonstrate to the Lord, uh, we are saying to ourselves at the same time, only He can do it. Will you come? We can't quite fit everybody in in the church hall. Come anyway. How exciting to see hundreds coming to pray. We've got to do it, otherwise we'll trust ourselves. Will you come? Please, friends, I don't want to go the way of the unbelieving church. Will you join me in praying? See, unbelief is betrayed by a lack of prayer. That's verse 29, you see. This kind can only come out by prayer. You haven't prayed. You're trusting yourselves. Unbelieving generation. Secondly, an enormous predicament. You see, an unbelieving generation springs from a failure to grasp the enormous predicament that we're in. By now, the men's final will probably be finished. Well, who knows? Half past seven, they could well still be playing at Wimbledon, but um, who knows? Anybody know the result? No. Somebody, nobody's got a little earpiece listening in? Glad to hear that. Well, if you have and you find out, let us know before the, uh, before the sermon's over. Um, there have been some remarkable... Uh, there have been some remarkable results at Wimbledon this last fortnight, not least of all in the women's game. Have you been watching? I've been watching it from, from Israel. Uh, I mean, I was going to the conference, you understand. But, uh, <laughs> there were little, little moments when I was able to get away. Uh, anyway, whoops, just uh, let that slip out. Um, Maria Sharapova, the world number three, was bitten by another Russian woman whose name I can't pronounce. She is 150 places below her in the world rankings, and she beat her. Anna Ivanovich, the world number one, was beaten by the Chinese girl Ji Zheng, ranked 133 in the world. Remarkable, remarkable results. Nobody would have believed it. Now, I don't know why Sharapova and Ivanovich lost, but be sure of this, if we underestimate the opposition, we are in very serious trouble. That's the disciples' problem. They thought that they could drive out the evil spirit, but end of verse 18, they could not. Do you see it there? They could not. Verse 29, they didn't pray. They trusted in themselves. They underestimated what they were up against. Satan is very powerful. That's the point of this story. This boy's problem was massive. Look again at what the evil spirit did to the boy. Verse 17, it robbed the boy of speech. Verse 18, it attempted to destroy him. Verse 21, it tried to kill him. Remember the words of Jesus in John 10? The thief came only to steal and kill and destroy. And then again, the gnashing of teeth in verse 18 is surely meant to remind us of Jesus' words that in hell there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the reference in verse 21 of throwing the boy into the fire to kill him, well, we'll pick that up at the end of chapter 9 of Mark, of fire is the place of hell. Satan is very powerful and he wants to take everyone to hell. That is the enormity of the predicament of human beings. And you and I cannot escape from that. We are dealing with a powerful enemy who will take us to eternal destruction. He will take us down. Now clearly the disciples haven't grasped that. I need to be reminded of that all the time. They certainly did, do you? They thought they could deal with this evil spirit in their own strength. 
See, all the time that we don't pray, we are saying that we think we can solve the problems of the world. Just as unbelief is betrayed by a lack of prayer, unbelief is always linked with self-belief. Trusting in me. I can do it. Why do we not pray at the beginning of the day? Because we think we can get through the day. If we didn't know where our next meal was coming from, if we were in a war zone, we'd be praying every day, wouldn't we? If we think we can get through it, so we don't pray. Unbelief is always linked with self-belief. And you see, when we stop trusting the Lord, we start acting like the world, believing that we can solve the problems. Now look at how the world tackles the problems in society. I take the huge problem in, uh, of knife crime in, in Britain. I was trying to get some statistics on this. Uh, these are the ones I've got. They're a bit out of date. But in 2007, there were 27 teenagers stabbed to death in London alone. In the first 10 weeks of 2008, there were nine fatal stabbings in London and we know there have been many since, but I don't know how many. Now, quite rightly, police and politicians are treating the problem very seriously. We thank God that they are. But I say respectfully and gently, they don't understand how great the problem is. You say, who are you, a preacher, to be telling these great people that they don't understand the situation? Don't misunderstand me it's clear that the politicians and police are working hard to deal with the problem. But I'll say again, they don't understand how great the problem is because they really believe that with the right laws passed and the right sentences given and the right policies put in place, they can fight and overcome this epidemic. But they can't. Not because they're not good, not because they're not doing the right thing, but because they can't. As Christians, you and I know, no amount of legislation and social action will solve the problem. Because the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We cannot change people. The problems of this world will only be changed by the gospel. Now look, I don't expect our politicians to believe that. So I'm not knocking them. But here's the desperate thing. So much of the church in this nation doesn't believe that either. So go to many churches in Britain and they offer little more than a religious program of social reform. It's basically social reform with a bit of religion thrown in. They think that if you give people morals within a religious framework that it will change them. It won't. The problem is bigger than that. We have a mighty enemy in Satan. People need to be transformed and they can only be transformed by the gospel, nothing else. You see what Mark is doing by sandwiching this exorcism between these two sections on the cross, on Jesus' explanation of the cross and resurrection, Mark compares the disciples' failure to pray with their failure to accept what Jesus said. They rejected the cross because they underestimated both the strength of the opposition and their own weakness. They thought they were strong. Look, if we don't understand the cross and resurrection, if we don't understand or understand why it's necessary, and if we don't preach on it and rely on it, we have nothing. And when we have nothing like that, the church becomes nothing. The problem of the human race is massive. And so the solution must be massive too. And that takes us to our third point. We need an almighty saviour. See, in an unbelieving generation we face an enormous predicament and so we need an almighty saviour. And that's what we saw last week. 
Let me remind you of last week. As Jesus was up the Mount of Transfiguration, here was one up the mountain in a cloud. Ring any bells from the Old Testament? Transformed to be dazzling white. And then if you haven't got it, he's confirmed as God's own son. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. See, he is the one, the only one who can deal with humanity's enormous predicament. And we see that here in verse 25, don't we? When Jesus saw a crowd running to the sea and he rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. See, it takes the death and resurrection to deal with mankind's problem. That's what the disciples didn't understand. And that's why the very next thing Jesus did was teach them. Verse 30, they left the place, passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after, that, after three days he will rise. See, they didn't understand the reason for Jesus' death and resurrection. And again, that's what we see in the church today. So much of the church has failed to see the death and resur- the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you only ever come here, you won't believe this, but many churches see Jesus' death as nothing more than an example of loving sacrifice that we are to follow. Look, Jesus loved his friends so much, we ought to love our friends. That's it. You may not believe me, but it's true that churches teach that the bodily resurrection of Christ didn't actually happen. That it just points to a vague, uncertain spiritual resurrection. And when churches are doing that, and sadly there are tons of churches, we're not talking about one or two odd ones, there are tons of churches all over Britain teaching that sort of stuff. Well then there is no power in the message of the church at large. There is nothing different about those who attend these churches. They have nothing to offer the world and that's why so much of the church is dying and is irrelevant in this needy world. It's tragic, isn't it? Why is the church exploding in Africa? Because they're preaching the gospel. Why is it declining in our nation? All sorts of reasons, but not least of all, because we're not preaching the gospel. It's simple, isn't it? Take the church at Kendray. Since Pete Jackson has arrived there 18 months ago, the church has exploded. From 15 people, there's now 50 go on a Sunday. Why? He's preached the gospel. It's not complicated, is it? In an unbelieving generation, we face an enormous predicament, and so we need an almighty saviour. And that is the lesson of the indoor seminar in verses 28 and 29 as we close. See, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. You see, it was crucial at this point for the church to grasp this. Back in verse 19, Jesus said, uh, do you see it there? Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? Jesus would soon be dying and rising and ascending to heaven. He wasn't going to be around forever. He wouldn't always be around to sort out these problems that when they couldn't do the job, he would walk in and sort. He wouldn't always be around. And so it was crucial for them to understand where the power to transform belongs. That it doesn't belong in their giftedness but it belongs with God. 
but the power is in the gospel. And they urgently needed to grasp not only where the, where the power was, but as it were how, how the power becomes operative on earth. So Jesus takes them into this little room and he says, do you want to know? It's through prayer. See, prayer acknowledges two things. It acknowledges that we can't and he can. It's as simple as that. And we pray when we realise that we can't do this on our own. That's what this whole event is about. We are powerless against the evil one. And we pray when we believe that he can. And we see that here, don't we? We see the power of Jesus. Verse 26, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. Just a word from Jesus. And the evil spirit is powerless to resist. And so we are asked to proclaim the word of Jesus and we are asked to pray to demonstrate that we know that we can't, but he can. And finally, the positive example is the boy's father in verse 24. Let me read from verse 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. See, here is the moment where the father came to realise, I can't, but he can. And this is a desperate cry for help. The word translated in verse 24, exclaimed, is the same word in verse 26, shrieked. So the boy's father screamed out to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. He is screaming. That's genuine prayer, isn't it? Fervent, earnest prayer. There is nowhere else to go. No one else who can help. I can't, but you can. Help me. And when we start to pray like that, believing in the mighty work of Jesus' death and resurrection knowing the enormity of the problem of unbelief, preaching the glorious gospel of grace, then we might just begin to see the sort of growth, church growth, that the Africans are witnessing. And we might begin to see all the churches that punctuate our landscape being filled and our nation once again being truly Christian. Wouldn't that be magnificent? It sounds great. We can whip ourselves up today, but it will start tomorrow morning when we get down on our knees and pray, or don't. And when at the end of the month we say, we're going to go to the prayer meeting, we're going to make sure that forward doesn't fall into disbelief, we're going to pray. Oh, we can shout and get you excited now. We're going to do it tomorrow? The end of the month? Through the year? This passage says there's only one thing to do. Believe the gospel, preach the gospel, pray to the God of the gospel. Let's pray now.